Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am your host, and I am joined for this episode by Hisham Mellum of the Anahar Daily, who writes a column there. David Sanger of the New York Times, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and Corey Shockey of a beach somewhere in California <laughs> searching for an honest politician or something, something she's doing out there um, in the general vicinity of Stanford University. Um, uh, David, as we look at what's going on in Washington uh, these days, um, it seems that the president of the United States, in terms of his foreign policy, is increasingly driven primarily not by national interests or by a national security strategy, because Lord knows he's not even going to read this because it's 70 pages long. And the last time he read a document that was 70 pages that wasn't his tax returns was possibly in college. Um, it seems to be driven— about a prenup? <laughs> that's good. That yeah. Long? yeah, are they that long? That's yeah. If, if, you're, if you got an empire the size of Donald Trump, yeah. you assume that's they're at least that fun. long. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good, David. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, but, but he's being driven by the Mueller investigation, and everything he does is to, you know, as Ed said in the last episode, it's to distract from it. It's to counter-program. He is doing counter-programming as president of the United States as opposed to foreign policy. True or false? Uh, I hate to say it, but I think that's mostly true. Um, You've seen, I think, three characteristics of the foreign policy. The first is it sounded sometimes worse than it's been, which is to say if you read the tweets and listened to the president and then you compared it to somewhat more modest action by his cabinet, you'd have to say, you know, some of the things they've been doing, including in North Korea so far with ramping up pressure and yet trying to get some some secret diplomacy going, I don't think it's going to work, but trying to do it is not a bad formula. Um, the second characteristic has been appeal to tribalism. And we discussed a little bit of that in, in our last episode. But when you're recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, or whether you're declaring that you're pulling out of uh, something like the Paris uh, Accord when it's not actually legally binding, so you didn't really need to, to do that, or when you're decertifying the Iran deal so that you can tell the crowds you've decertified it and not mention that that does not actually remove the United States from its obligations under the Iran deal, then you're just appealing to what your base wants to hear. The third factor has been a little bit more complex, 
And the third factor is moving the United States back to a world in which we really are walled off to some degree. Because everything the president pulls back from, someone fills the vacuum. So in Vladimir Putin's trip to Syria and to Turkey, what do you see? You see somebody coming in and saying, the Americans can't do it for you, but I can. Even the French president, our allies, doing the same thing, Macron. That, Macron is doing the same thing. That, anyway, that, go ahead. That's right. So uh, Putin isn't the only one. And uh, you could even argue that Merkel's doing a little bit of that in her much quieter way. Um, and in the slow dismantlement of the State Department, you see a sort of long-range pulling back from diplomacy. And the big question that I just don't know the answer to is, what will it take to go reverse that? Will it either be a recognition that the United States is being dealt out of things, or will it require a different or a new president? I'm not sure what it's going to take. What do you think? Uh, uh, the, the, David just said many things. Could, can I pick up on any of them? Pick up on anything that David said. Or, or how something he is, that I did. Or how he is, <laughs> or how I, or how he is dressed. So I don't disagree with anything David said. I, I, I'd sort of like to broaden the foreign policy scope. You've become to, the new Corey. To <laughs> East Asia. Uh, yeah, except I'm not, I'm not about to follow up with an optimistic point. A relatively optimistic, because of course it's all relative. How about a gale of infectious laughter? <laughs> I can do a throaty Motown-esque chuckle for you at, some, <laughs> at, at an appropriate moment in the podcast. Whoa. Uh, I think we've got a new a new thing for the mugs. Throaty. I thro- do think Motown. that's a great mug slogan. Wow. Um, is you know things things move on um, very very quickly, and um, whether you're doing stuff or not doing stuff. So the rise of China. The shifting geopolitics um, on on a global scale that was happening before Trump, you know, descended that that escalator on on June fifteenth, two thousand fifteen, was happening under Obama, was happening happening under Bush Jr., has been happening for the last generation, is picking up through unforced errors, and Trump's trip to Asia uh, and the visit to uh, China, the way in which. Xi Jinping played him. And I know we've talked about this before, but I think, you know, the big picture in the world is China. Uh, uh, And this is the big relationship of the 21st century. The way in which Xi Jinping played him, the way in which TPP was relaunched without America, with one name change that Justin Trudeau uh, uh, insisted on, but that essentially is continuing without America. The way in which the Mexicans and the Canadians are getting closer to China, uh, the way in which China is investing in all kinds of relationships, uh, in all kinds of ways that are going under our media radio- radar for the most part. Um, you know, one example being they have more undersecretaries general now at the UN than any other country. And these are good diplomats, Ivy League educated, fluent, sophisticated, supple figures. Is that actually a compliment coming from you, Ivy League of, educated? Uh, it is, indeed. No, no, it is, it's, no, it's an expression of envy, in fact. <laughs> oh, it's not just a compliment. Um, that, uh, you I know, this, this was would one be, of those Oxford-Cambridge things. I yeah. thought it was sort of no, I thought they looked down on us Yeah, all. right. No, yeah. no, 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 no. It's, Why uh, did they talk so funny otherwise? I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> the ultimate accolade is Pushkin Institute, of course. But, you know, <laughs> I, had, I hadn't mentioned that. 
um, that this is the big picture going on here. And whatever we discuss about, you know, relations across the Atlantic, what Russia's up to the Middle East, um, the most important thing are the unforced errors that are happening against the backdrop of the rise of China. And the, the, the geopolitical windfall for China at this point of Donald Trump discovering how easy it is to play the guy. It's like six-year-old kid with a gun. You flatter them. You offer them candy. You talk them down from... Uh, you talk their gun down, and um, that's it. You tickle them on the belly and give them some, some gifts. And that's all you need to do with this president. It's an extraordinary fact that I don't think having two foreign policies um, it, you know, is going to make up for. Trump. Trump is... Uh, exactly what he fears. They are laughing at him. They are laughing at him. And, uh, you know, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here. I think this is an accurate description of how the rest of the world views this president. Um, and I think the pole position to view it from is Beijing. You, you know, I, I wonder sometimes if, if in his moments of solitude, uh, he believes that I've been played by these great powers. You know, even before Trump, when I always see the uh, Americans negotiating with China or, or Iran, these are ancient cultures. And I always say, beware. These people have 4,000 years of political tradition. And I would even add in the case of Iran, even China, 4,000 years of political cunning. These people, I mean, China is unto itself. It's a world unto itself. And now, I mean, until the 15th century, they were the most important power in the world. Till 18. 18- 35, they Almost, were the largest you know, And they had a great navy, great, great you know, power uh, projection and everything, great culture, a great sense of who they are, a great sense of identity. The same thing with, with, with Iran. One thing I, I agreed with, with Obama at that time, he, he said Obama, as, as Zbigniew Brzezinski used to say, it's a serious country. And it is a serious country. These are serious countries. They know what they want, and they believe that they own the future. We are acting as if we own the past. Our youth are not as hungry to achieve and to succeed the way 50 years ago they used to be after the Second World War. And now we have a different world we're dealing with. And I think we've been bleeding in Iraq and other places since the year 2000. And, and, and there, is, there, is no, there is no strategic direction. And even when Obama was talking about uh, uh, sh- uh, um, uh, pivoting to, the, to, to, to East Asia, he didn't really do it. And so now we have this, this, uh, this, this um, uh, uh, lack of vision in dealing with China. I mean, the Chinese are buying ports in Greece. They want to have an opening to, to, to Europe from Greece. Uh, they are, you have this thing, you know, one belt, one road. They are investing billions and billions of dollars in their area around their world. Uh, in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean, uh, building, 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 uh, uh, even military bases. They're building Eurasia. They're, I mean, they're building, they're Eurasia, building exactly. the railway between exactly. Belgrade uh, and Budapest. Precisely, precisely. And they are re- reviving the old Silk Road, if you have anything, uh, any sense of uh, the history of that part of the world. And what we are doing, we are, we are, we are, we are talking about nativism. I mean, look at the political discourse. I mean, to me, I, I, I watch, I, you know, I'm a great student of, of, of ancient history in the Greece and uh, Greek and uh, uh, Greek uh, city states in Rome. What are we doing? I mean, you know, in the era of globalization, we are retrenching. Uh, 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 I mean, 
this is the country that inherited the world in 1945 when we had almost 45% of the, the, the size of the world economy. What are we doing? We're talking about nativism. We're talking about uh, uh, ra- race issues and, and, and leaving Europe alone. And we are living in a world where, 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 the, where the dominant players are people like Xi Jinping and, 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 and Putin and the Iranian regime and all of these things. It's just we live, we, 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 we are abdicating American leadership. And, and, and one final word, really, I mean, to me, uh, I look at it as, uh, 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 as someone who, who became an American. I was not born in this country. It means something to me when I hear all this nonsense about uh, nativism. I fled the Middle East in part because I didn't believe there were sanctuaries left in the Middle East. And I want to live in the United States where I don't feel that I'm not even welcome here. So instead of talking globalization, instead of talking, you know, a, a, a vision for the, the, the century, uh, we're going back to, uh, to uh, nativism. That's what scares well, me. Well, you know, I, you know, you guys are all very well educated and I'm from New Jersey and you're like, read, you know, um, the Peloponnesian Wars and the bathtub and I'm like watching E! News. <laughs> so, Is know, that what they did at Columbia when yeah, you were a student? Yeah, they yeah, just watched yeah, E! News? Yeah, yeah no. Contemporary <laughs> civilization. <laughs> and we, and, I didn't even realize they had television. And so when Ed says <laughs> the most important relationship of the 21st century is the U.S. and China, I'm thinking, but what about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? <laughs> That seems like the most important relationship to me. But, but Corey, I think more seriously, what I hear in all of this is that we're really living in a strategic desert in the United States. That for the past 25 years, for the past 25 years, we have been without an overarching strategy for the United States. Um, whether it's uh, uh, in terms of geopolitics or whether it's in terms of economics, right? You know, in the Cold War, I'm not even so sure we had much of a strategy. I mean, there, we, we, you know, we, we, it sort of got us to the defeat of the Soviet Union, but we didn't really have a plan for after that. But, but, but you, you know, you teach this, you deal with this from a very scholarly perspective. Do you feel that we're we're at a, a particular low point in American modern history in terms of just strategic vision? Yeah, I actually do. It was clawing at my heart to hear Hisham's description of his loss of faith in our common country. And and as you were saying that, David, I was thinking about the great historian Arnold Toynbee's reflection that civilizations die by suicide, not by murder. And the United States, you know, we're an empire in a sense. We're also a civilization in a sense, right? Of people who hold these truths to be self-evident. And especially for Americans who came of age after 1945, when the hard men who had won World War II tried to build a different order and one that produced prosperity and freedom of a kind that, of a magnitude that hadn't existed before. Those of us who are the inheritors of that legacy are failing catastrophically. We're not just chewing away at the bases of that strength. President Trump is blithely pretending that all of those things, that trade and international institutions and alliance relationships and standing for something bigger than our power and advancing our values in the world, the president acts as though those are somehow 
inhibitions on the United States rather than the great glory of what has made us successful. And that's really heartbreaking. I think that's a, I, I agree with Corey completely. Uh, and I agree with her because when you talk to the president, he still views most relationships as completely transactional. And so when he was talking about NATO with us during the campaign, it was all a, what am, what am I getting out of this? And why would I put money into an alliance with countries with whom we have a trade imbalance? Mixing the apples and oranges of security and trade. I'm not saying they're completely divorced, but the, the concept that you were investing in an alliance <laughs> for a day that you could not really predict, for a moment, a confrontation uh, that you couldn't predict, that's a really hard thing to sort of explain to somebody if they hit age 70 and they haven't engaged in that before. And um, we've, seen, uh, we've seen that happen uh, before. Uh, I was watching the other day, um, my son and I went to go see the, the Darkest Hour, which is the, the movie about Churchill uh, in, the, in the opening days of uh, when, the, when the Nazis were overtaking France and Belgium and, and all that. And there's this heartbreaking moment where he's on the phone with FDR, and FDR clearly wants to go help him, but he's limited by a Congress that basically said, we're going to stay completely neutral, so... We can't, set, we can't deliver to you the airplanes you've already paid for. We can't help you with ships and so forth. Now, ultimately, FDR found his way around it. But in the end, the only way they really got around it was after Pearl Harbor. And it was a little bit – FDR did not share the Trumpian view that these were all transactional. But he was dealing with a Congress that did. Yeah. So – we might lay some of the blame at Congress's feet. We might lay some of the blame at the succession of American presidents who haven't advanced a strategy in this country. We might lay some of the blame at divisions in American politics at the grassroots level that have produced a divided country. Um, but what about the the intelligentsia, the policy community? the people who are supposed to be coming up with strategy and big ideas. And it seems to me that this generation of thinkers has let the country down as much as the political leaders, if not more so. I think um, sometimes, this might be to stretch the analogy, but I sometimes think the routinization of how the foreign policy community works, the Think if you've written about it in your book, National Insecurity, the uh, the think tank sort of output, um, uh, as if nothing much has changed. The sort of pitching to the median sort of conventional wisdom that this is a bit like the sort of late Mandarin class in Imperial China. It's going through a ritual, an exegetical ritual of what you're supposed to do. I mean, well, maybe maybe cargo cult is a better analogy of what you are supposed to do if you are a great power, because that's what we've been doing for the last seven decades. Uh, uh, now, of course, there is a major never-Trumper movement within the foreign policy community of, of Republicans who are outraged 
um, by the Trump administration. Um, there, uh, there is also the sort of larger what what Obama called blob, but they're essentially indistinguishable. We we, we all or they all abhor Trump. Um, but I think that they think Trump is just a misstep that will be corrected. And I don't think there's anywhere near the depth of alarm or concern uh, that we ought to be seeing about the longer-term potential of Trumpism, um, but also about how different the world would be um, whenever Trump does get off and whoever does re replace him after Trump has left it, how, how different the rest of the world would look at us. So the possibility of resuming where we left off after this aberration is, I think, not remotely discounted enough by uh, the foreign policy community here. And I do feel that it's going through the motions I I in way too complacent a way. Everybody is feeling quite happy in not liking Trump. And that's a nice clubbish feeling, well, but right. it's not. It doesn't pay enough attention to the to the depth of what Trump represents. Well, but it, I think it also goes in a, a, another degree. And, and let me ask Corey first, and then I'll talk to ask Kisham. But another component of it in this institutional structure you talk about, this routinization of the institutional structure that you talk about, is not just how sort of self satisfied everybody is in going after Trump but how most people are doing special pleading most of the time anyway. And so there are, and I know this is going to be a big shock to listeners of Deep State Radio, which is objective and purely focused on insight and sort of um, uh, the you know, ground truth, uh, but there are podcasts out there with well-known foreign policy types or public policy types that are just there to tout the Obama record and to say, Obama was better, and oh my gosh, you should have, you know, and what those were the good old days. And there's, you know, there's lots of little schools of thought out there who are sort of pleading their case, essentially saying, I want a job in the next administration. Um, and the number of people who are saying, huh, China rising, India very important in that regard, you know, economic center of gravity shifting, nature of economies and how jobs are created shifting, power, you know, economic power lies with different people in the big data era, you know, data, digital assets are the most important, whatever it is, that there are big things changing on the horizon. And we're talking about granular moment to moment news So I don't disagree with the criticism that either David or Ed make that we're we are allowing ourselves to be dragged too much into the tactical knife fight and not looking enough at uh, how the constellations are whirling over our heads and what that's going to mean for life on this planet. Uh, but I think it is a little bit uncharitable. Um, systemically. And what I mean by that is that I think the shock is just now wearing off for many people about President Trump's election, uh, trying to understand the perspective of the people who elected him, trying to understand the nature of interference in the election, trying to be fair to the genuine concerns that Trump voters have, peeling away the sanctimoniousness 
that a lot of coverage of Trump voters, um, with which the coverage of much of Trump voters has treated them, that is, you're all redneck bigots, um, as opposed to people who are scared. And David, I think um, you've actually pointed the way towards the solution, which is that as we begin, as the shock wears off of President Trump's election, and all of us start to grope with effective ways to understand what's happening, to uh, create countervailing forces, to organize towards better solutions, um, to address the problems that that people are experiencing, that an understanding of geopolitics and an understanding of economics is essential to that. Um, and I don't think that I don't think that's a mission impossible. I actually think what President Trump did well was capitalize on the anxieties that people have. But as we talked about in the last podcast, he's not actually producing solutions, not even for the people who voted for him. And that leaves the playing field open for those of us who want different answers to uh, come up with good arguments, to come up with good policy solutions, to fill that space. And I actually think democracy is brilliant at that. It's not brilliant at it in an eight-month time frame, but it's brilliant at it in a five-year time frame. And I will adjust the tiara of optimism and say that I am wholly confident that this republic will be capable of that. I hope. I mean, I, usually I am accused of uh, sounding like a Cassandra, you know, uh, preaching gloom and doom. Uh, I, I would say two, two, th- two things. The long-term uh, Trump damage to our international relations and to uh, our uh, domestic uh, 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 discourse and, and, and what I call also domestic crut. I mean, uh, uh, Corey mentioned Twenby. Uh, in his description of how civilization uh, uh, die from within, and I and I think you wow, know, a, du- I, a double Toynbee reference on this episode. Yes, bro. exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the nerds are the nerds are getting a little perspiration yeah, around their upper lips right and, and now. You, you can actually <laughs> throw that to that one, and that's it. <laughs> can you imagine if you could bring all of Toynbee's histories? Down to one podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm working on bringing it down to a tweet. <laughs> and I, I think, David, you will succeed yeah, at that. I will succeed. 140 <laughs> character tweet. Yeah. Now, I'm not even decli- talking about the decline of the West, but that's okay. Look, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, when you think that we still have three years of this president, I really shudder to think of the impact of the damage that he is doing to the American, pol- to the to the domestic political discourse, all this talk about nativism, all this talk about blood and soil, all this talk about... Uh, 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 he, he's talking about, about identity. I mean, uh, 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 recently I went back and, and, and reread, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, James McPherson's great book, Battle Cry of Freedom. He describes the 1850s. I mean, you read, you read his description of the, of the political demonization and divisions uh, uh, and the deep polarization that existed in American society at that time, which really made the war inevitable. A- and you see echoes of that now. 
the degree of which we demonize each other, the degree uh, to which we have uh, large segments of the American population feel they don't fit, and these are the people who voted for for for, for Trump. I mean, let's let's let's. I keep reminding myself: sixty million Americans, fellow Americans, voted for him. Voted for him. Uh, I mean, that that says something about wh- where we are now uh, and the problems that we're having in, in, in not only relating to the outside world, but also relating to ourselves, but also the damage that he is doing to our international relations. This this is this is not going to be fixed immediately, even if you have another, you know, Lincoln uh, succeeding, succeeding him. And, and, you know, in a funny way, I always believed American presidents elect their successors. George Bush elected Obama because of the war in Iraq and because of the economy. Obama elected Trump. There was a reverse backlash. You know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, you know when Obama was elected, I, I wrote Excellent. a piece. So I, I, that I, means I, the next president will be a boring governor. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but, but the point is, you know, when Obama was elected, I wrote a piece that uh, the, uh, the election of Obama represented the best of America. And, but also, when, when I looked at the uh, phenomena of the Tea Party, he also, I mean, his election brought up the worst in America. And, 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 and this is my fear when I look at the next three years of, uh, of Trump and, uh, at the White House. The damage is going to be immense. It's going to be cultural. It's going to be political. It's going to be, uh, you know, uh, ideological. And in terms of our international relationship, it is not going to be easy to regain the trust of neighbors like Canada and Mexico. I mean, can you imagine Canada and Mexico dealing with China alone? Uh, 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 I mean, mean, this is really unheard of. Um, You know, by the way, Ed, I look at you here and I think about this next election and I just think, you know, it's not a zero possibility that you could end up with the candidate of either party or even the candidate of both parties being an Indian woman. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Which is 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 kind of interesting and does suggest some forward motion in American politics with regard to Nikki Haley and Kamala Harris. Yeah, I think that's an entirely plausible. I mean, Kamala Harris, I, I, I hear from many people whose judgments often withheld, but usually shrewd, is you know her stock's been rising very very rapidly in the last few months. Nikki Haley goes without saying her stock has been rising, so that's not implausible that nobody thinks that the sort of dynamic social flux of America has been put on pause. I mean, if there's one thing that Obama to Trump, to whoever succeeds Trump, you know, demonstrates is this is dynamic in a sort of neutral sense of the world. This is an unpredictable society in great flux. But I want to pick up and make one point that slightly deviates from your question, which won't be popular, which is we are so bent out of shape by Trump that the Democratic Party's only foreign policy right now is that Russia is bad. Russia is our number one geopolitical foe. Remember, that was Mitt Romney's much-mocked line in 2012. That is essentially the Democratic worldview. It doesn't have a foreign policy other than that. And it's wrong. Russia is way bent out of proportion as a threat to the United States. Uh, Putin exploited opportunities we created in America and indeed in Brexit environment in Britain that were principally domestically created problems that we're now entirely laying at his door. We are giving him such potency, a country, a leader of a country that's smaller than Italy's economy, 
we uh, we're giving him the credit for manipulating the largest democracy the world has ever known the other side of the atlantic and this is the democratic party's foreign policy now i know there are nuances there and i know there are you know there are individual senators with very very good foreign policy records but as a party as a whole what other foreign policy has it got except opposing trump and following through the consequences of that the last word for this podcast episode goes to David Sanger. So um, two quick things on this. First of all, I'm not entirely sure that Nikki Haley can inherit the base that Donald Trump created. I think that there are a lot of people in that base who have a hard time with some of the things she did in her record as governor and may have a hard time with some of the things that she has said at the United Nations. And it's not at all clear to me that they would all completely go and embrace her. On your second point about the Democrats having um, no great strategic foreign policy vision here, um, that's true. That puts them on par with the Republican Party right now that had one and lost it when they couldn't figure out whether or not Trump was the part, was, was a product of the Republican Party or whether they had to get in line uh, with his. Um, the fixation on Russia is fascinating because if you ask anybody to sort of step back and say, what's our biggest challenge over the next 50 or 100 years, I think in both parties, people would agree China. it's China. China. And then you say, so tell me why we're so fixated with Russia. And the answer is they successfully grabbed onto this fissure in American society and politics that you uh, grabbed onto. But they did so because the, the other interrupter in here was that the cyber power that they seized upon is the great leveler. It's the thing that you can grab onto if you are Russia or North, North Korea, Korea or Iran. Or Iran. Right. That's right. That enables you to go do a good short of war operation and basically punch above your weight. And he figured that out. It's very. Do you want to add something here before we wrap, Corey? I, I heard a sharp no, intake of breath. <laughs> yes, I I was just putting the tr of optimism back in a box because I had to take it off listening to David. have i tarnished it forever (laughs) um no but it will always be served in the future with a xanax Um, (laughs) anyway folks thanks again for another great episode of deep state radio next week we'll be joined by julia yafi who i think is going to talk a little bit more about the overestimation of Vladimir Putin and continuing forward on those themes. But hopefully we, on an ongoing basis, are going to focus on issues of strategy and bigger picture discussions that are not carried on elsewhere. And I think that the, you begin, you, if you are sitting at home and you want to play strategy or board games such as Risk, but if you're beginning at home and you want to play strategy, uh, you have to start by saying the center of economic gravity has shifted to the Pacific, the center of uh, uh, innovation and of uh, 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 social growth is increasingly in the Pacific, um, 
And we need to tear our eyes away from the stories of the news cycle and look out longer term to China, to India. And I think India is as important a relationship to the United States in the 21st century as is China, because China is that important a relationship. Um, and we need to come up with policies, but also institutions, uh, alliances, um, and uh, uh, uh training that can prepare people for that world. Uh, because as Corey said, a lot of the issues are economic, but many of them are technological. And one of the things we return to on a regular basis here is that the cadre of leaders that we are training today in schools today are not being trained in the technological issues that will produce the biggest geopolitical changes over the course of the next um, decade, much less the next several decades. So we'll return to that when you return to us, starting with the next episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you very much, Corey Shockey, Hisham Mellum, Ed Luce, and David Sanger. We'll see you soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.